people have said you can't do self-help for anorexia. Well, we've got a, a self-help trial that we just start, finished all the data, got about 180 patients, and we're just starting to analyse. And, you know, people join in and they work in a... I mean, it's a guided self-help, so we, we do um, online coaching. Um, yeah. But it's possible to do. And... You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week you'll hear the conversation that I have with Professor Janet Treasure. Janet Treasure has specialised in the treatment and research of eating disorders for a very long time and is currently the Director of the Eating Disorder Unit and Professor of Psychiatry at the Institute of Psychiatry, King's College, London. Professor Janet Treasure is also known for her work um, with the Maudsley Hospital. And Maudsley, for those of you who are not familiar, it's pretty much the first sort of family-based treatment approach to eating disorders. And so that's why this is a very important conversation, as far as I'm concerned as well, because it's that treatment approach which led to the progression in eating disorder treatment that we now are seeing and the successes really um, which are large for both children and adults. Um, Now Professor Treasure was awarded an OBE and for my American listeners that's Officer of the Order of the British Empire, kind of a big deal, for her service to people with eating disorders in 2013. She's been working in the field for a very long time and continues to make progress and continues to research. So in this conversation, we we talk about her work in the field, a little bit of um, history on Professor Treasure, and we also talk about inpatient treatment for eating disorders, the pros and the cons. We talk about um, actually things like oxytocin and the research that's been done around um, oxytocin for anorexia. And we also talk about the importance of community support for people with eating disorders and things like how people with eating disorders can actually use self-help resources to continue their own um, treatment when they're out of inpatient treatment or working alone in the home. And so we talk about um, children with eating disorders, but actually most of the conversation is geared towards adults and also Um, caregivers. Um, So a caregiver maybe is a better word used to describe somebody that's helping a child but in these circumstances with adults really we're talking about spouses and um, partners. The rough ride that they get um, and also just some sort of ways of dealing with that and interpretations that might make that a little bit smoother because those relationships are important. We know that family-based treatment is where it's at with eating disorders but we also know that geez sometimes it's really hard isn't it and so it's just being realistic about that and talking about these things and using one another and community support to give everybody involved the help that they need when there's an eating disorder in the house so here's my conversation with professor janet treasure as always i started by asking Janet to tell us a little bit about herself. Here's Professor Treasure. Mm. Uh, Well, I'm a psychiatrist at the Maudsley and I've been working here with people with eating disorders for about the last 35 years. Um, Meanwhile, I've been doing research as well into eating disorders. And how did you get into the field of eating disorders? Um, well, when you look retrospectively, it looks as though I followed a path, but it, all of it going forward was chance. Uh, but I won a prize for eating disorders when I was at university, and I had friends with eating disorders, although I was very puzzled and didn't know much about it at the time. But the first, I decided to do psychiatry, and the first I was rung up to do a locum job and it was with Gerald Russell. So by chance they had a vacancy uh, and I was able to take that. And, and then I, so I started in eating disorders and then went back to do a research qualification uh, in it. And for anybody who's not entirely sure what we're talking about when we're talking about Maudsley Hospital, I asked um, Janet to elaborate a little bit on what the Maudsley does? 
Well, when I was first here was uh, when the study that's called uh, Maudsley Family Therapy uh, was in action. And so this was one of the first sort of psychotherapy randomized controlled trials because people hadn't been very sure that you could do psychotherapy randomized controlled trials. So this was a trial that Gerald Russell had set up whereby people after an inpatient admission were randomized to family-based therapy or individual therapy. Uh, and that study was um, very influential in the field because it was able to show that for people who'd had the illness for a short time uh, and were adolescents, so less than three years and were still had the illness in adolescence, they did better with family-based therapy than having individual therapy. But in fact, for other groups, such a, uh, a finding wasn't found. So once people had had the illness for three years, they didn't do very well with either therapy. Uh, and the, these results were true at one year and were true at five years. There was people who had a later onset over 18, it was almost a trend for them to seem to do better with individual, but it wasn't powerful enough to have a, a, a firm effect. So this, this uh, superiority of family-based therapy or Maudsley therapy as the Maudsley approach was only for the young ones, less than three years. So that really started uh, the idea that this was a different form of treatment uh, for uh, people with anorexia nervosa and then led to people doing outpatient treatment trials also. And how, how do you think that that has changed or progressed over the years, that approach? Well, it's changed in that um, it's been manualised uh, and spread across the world. We've been very much changing it because we are in, I'm in, I work more with adults, so I have a lot of people who've been ill much more than three years and who are adults now. Uh, and yet they often have a very severe course and a very, uh, have a lot of health and, and psychological and social problems. So they need a lot of care. Uh, and so we've, adapted that approach for working with such families because the, the Maudsley-based family approach was sort of empowering parents to feed the child but that's not as appropriate in these adults and there's the illness gets more severe so there's a lot more they have to do so what we've been doing is training the carers the family in the same way we train our nurses and give them those same skills. One of the basic skills is to recognise that when people are starving, that their ability to recognise emotions, to express emotions is very changed because the brain hasn't got the energy to do that complex processing. Uh, the, the brain hasn't got the energy and is very stressed, so it tends to have bias towards seeing threat and criticism uh, which can make these sort of things make conversations difficult uh, but also we teach them that having somebody who's very underweight um, and yet not doing something that seems so simple eating is intensely frightening and frustrating and there's a tendency for us to have emotional responses to that and when we were talking about this and explaining it to carers and explaining about the illness we came up with these animal metaphors uh, and that was a sort of joint process between carers and ourselves so we had you know being a, a kangaroo where you're overprotective and uh, uh, walking on eggshells putting the person in the pouch so that um you know that that they don't have to suffer or they don't explode with anxiety so that can often happen or it, the opposite and these things people vary 
and very you know can vary over a short period of time and become very rhino you must do this charging in uh, with approaches uh, so that's another animal metaphor then we developed even more being a jellyfish is where you get so stressed and emotionally involved that you become uh, very irritable angry and sad and distressed and can people can get even clinically depressed by managing this because it's uh, a lot of work with meals three times a day at least have to be managed uh, or there's the avoiding emotions the ostrich approach so we found that this was very helpful and then we recognize that there's other behaviors that carers can get trapped into such as accommodating to this disorder uh, allowing the eating disorder to hold you know you, I don't have to eat this crust, do I? Or I'm only going to eat half. Those sort of things, you know, better to eat something than nothing type of thing. So allowing the eating disorder to, to behaviour to dominate or enabling it, sort of perhaps allowing people to eat separately, use separate crockery, do all those eating disorder behaviours that, that, that can overcome the individual and become very ritualized and very difficult to manage mm, i think you you called that one the ostrich would that be the ostrich one uh no the enabling the the the, the enabling and accommodating are two a bit i mean the 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 accommodating is a bit being a kangaroo um uh, but not totally uh and the enabling again is a bit like a kangaroo um yeah, but they're a bit different. The others are more emotions and these are behaviours, what you do. Mm -hmm. um, I have a lot of listeners who are partners of people with eating disorders. And we mostly talk about adults. And um, so I do know I have a lot of people listening that will either be a partner or a parent for an adult with an eating disorder. And um, I, I know the question that a lot of them will be thinking in their heads now and wanting to ask is what do I do when they just will not cooperate with me? Um, I, I had an email this week from somebody whose wife had decided that he was no longer allowed to come to her doctor's um, appointments and she didn't want him. He had been helping her manage her eating disorder and working with her treatment team. And just this week out of the blue, she, she decided, or should we say her eating disorder decided that he would not be allowed to be involved anymore. Um, and it's like the golden question, what do I do? Mm. Well, these are very difficult uh, situations, but then, uh, you know, I think that carers have to learn to go underneath the, the statements and go to the emotion. So you'd be saying, it sounds as though your eating disorder is very strong at the moment and you're very anxious that you... Uh, won't let me participate in your care anymore. So starting a conversation in terms of that. And it is very hard for partners because uh, what we find is that they're often on their own, at least with parents, they can you can have another brain to sort of come up with solutions and, and uh, think of different ways. Whereas for a partner, you're on your own. People feel that they shouldn't talk to friends. They have the sort of intimacy of a marriage and feel that that's wrong. Uh, and so that can be very tough. And so what we find with partners is that they're very stressed. Um, and the levels of stress and anxiety and depression are as high as what we see in the mothers, because we tend to see that higher in the mothers than the fathers. Uh, but very isolated. So that's a very difficult position to be in. Uh, and, and another thing is that they've always got the option for, should I be in this? Is this the right thing? Or should I get out? Whereas a parent, you know, tends not to be thinking or, or have even that option to think about. Mm -hmm. And I think the parent community online, especially, is quite strong. Uh, you can get into some really good... Um, online forums and Facebook pages. And as far as I've seen, that doesn't exist in the same extent for partners and spouses. Yes. Yes, I think that's right. And I think part of it is this, you know, 
feeling that what's a family, you know, the intimacy of, 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 of a partnership means that it is difficult. You feel bad talking about it and it's not what one does. So, uh, and yet when you've got problems uh, and when you're very upset about things, we know that one of the best coping mechanisms is support from others. Uh, and so that perhaps has to be discussed with their spouse, saying, I'm feeling very stressed and upset. I feel I need to speak to somebody else and, and you know, have that open and discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, Jenny, I'd, I'd love to ask you about your views on inpatient treatment for eating mm-hmm. disorders. Yeah. Well, I work on an inpatient unit and that... Um, was the standard treatment and as I say this when I first came to the Maudsley then recognizing that there are other ways of ensuring that any inpatient treatments lasted for a long time there wasn't relapse we found that answer for this particular subgroup Uh, and that has progressed with people now saying do you need to be admitted at all and so for adolescents uh, the most people try the family-based treatment in the first instance. Uh, But uh, for some people, their illness is so severe um, that they do, you know, their medical risk gets so high uh, that they do need inpatient treatment. Uh, And the problem is we don't really know what are the best, uh, how long that needs to be, how early people should be admitted uh, and there are a lot of cultural differences and it's very difficult to do trials Uh, but um, um, so so we we really don't know you know in America people have people admit them when they're very early in their illness BMI of 16 perhaps and short sharp uh, admissions, whereas we tend to only admit when there are BMI down to um, 13 on average, when they're really very, very sick. I and mean, it takes a long while. It's difficult to talk to such people, difficult for them to use therapy, uh, and it takes a long time to get them into, you know, anywhere near normal weight. When we look at the results, I mean, we've done a big trial with giving parents support. What we find is uh, the current, the old practice and what I was taught, you had to take everybody up to normal weight. But I think nowadays that isn't happening as much because we're getting this much more severe cohort. So people are admitted at a lower weight and uh, tend to be discharged at not up to normal weight, more like... 16 to 17 so still quite underweight still anorexia nervosa but we do find that over time uh two years afterwards the the average weight has gone up and is you know up at 17 18 so they've made progress from when they've been discharged and a lot of progress from when they've come in but of course that's the average and there's some people who relapse and require lots of admissions so we had our nice guideline statement saying try outpatient treatment as much as possible but since 2004 since those were written admissions have been increasing and repeat admissions have been increasing um so you know that that's something that's worrisome um and because it's so difficult to do randomized trials of different forms of inpatient care all we've done is you know does adding uh help for the carers help and we do find yes it helps a little bit we get um the carers a benefit from it but also the patient show benefit but it's it's only small but it's this is indirect help um but there's a lot more questions to be asked and there's a lot of uncertainties about inpatient care and how to make how to optimize it well i mean that bmi being released at a bmi 16 17 seems shockingly low to me 
Mm. Um, I know that uh, when I got up to uh, BMI 19, which would be considered a healthy range, I was still very sick, very yeah. active eating disorder. Yeah. I had to get up to um, more like 23, 24 before yeah. my eating disorder thoughts started to dissipate. Yeah, um, yes. No, you're right. And, and that used to be the standard teaching. But that would need perhaps, well, very coercive treatment uh, to get that in some patients because there's a lot of, you know, it, if you're getting patients who've been really severely ill and are really low in weight, it's very difficult to get them up to those levels uh in the first instance it takes a lot of time and uh yeah so so uh we're very uncertain mm, but um, it may take more time but it may mean that they don't come back a year later yeah and that hasn't been tested what has been tested is is looking at short admissions for younger ones so this is a group who respond anyway to outpatient treatment but what has been found that a very short admission followed by family work is as good as a longer admission so what you're saying has been slightly disproved but only in this specific age group mm -hmm. but for others we just don't know yeah and I, I tend to um, I was an adult onset as well and so I tend to work with adults and talk to adults and so it's it's always most of the people that I um, know, talk to, work with, have had an eating disorder for 10, 15, and some, one actually 35 years, and um, have had multiple IP admissions as well, but, you know, and both in the UK and the um, US. And um, so it's, it's, and it always, it always seems to me that they've just actually never got to a high enough weight where they can their eating disorder thoughts and the brain comes out of that state of semi starvation and obsessing about food. Um, and I do think that adults and I've seen adults and have done myself once I got to that higher weight and actually I, I write and talk about overshoot a lot because I think it should be normalized and thought of as a recovery weight rather than going over. Because I do think, you know, I think I know and I felt myself that difference between BMI 19 and BMI 23, 24, and I went a bit, I went over that as well, was incredible. Mm. Um, yes, no, I, I'm sure you're right. I mean, we, we know, you know, how much the brain uses energy and needs energy and especially complex function and interpersonal function really need you know the highest amounts and so there's bound to be disruption in many ways um but it's uh yes uh so that that's one issue um on the other hand there's the other issue that these things are very uh, habits that are learned and we know that there's only a certain amount of reversal of fear habits in one context you know you train a mouse not to be frightened by something uh, and that works in one cage but if you put them in another cage they're still frightened of the thing so if we translate from that is that when people go home they can still be as frightened of the food so so you know it's this you've got to look after the transition. That's what I'm quite passionate about, is trying. So it's all very well gaining weight in hospital, but unless you've prepared the home situation for providing support and, and saying that, you know, it's not going to be all rosy, it's not going to be cured. There's still a lot of work to be done and a lot of new learning again. So, so that, you know, I think that has to be emphasised and, and that's a new project we're doing now, which is working with both patients and family members so they understand about this transition planning and how careful that has to be and how much work. And I think, you know, quite rightly, sort of some carers are a bit, well, you've been in hospital and you should be cured. And, and that's very understandable to have that. Uh, and all of us would think of that for other illnesses but it's not the case for this there's still mm -hmm. so much work to be done mm -hmm. and the, the the toughest part is and a lot of people who I work with don't have anybody else they have no partner and they don't have family and they're an adult that comes out of inpatient and it's that's where I actually think the, the hope is the online community and the fact that we can Skype, you know, I, I, I talk to people via Skype and I think it's 
we have to use technology in those instances for people that really don't have the in-person community at home. Yeah, no, that's the, because often, I mean, there is a subgroup who've always not found social uh, situations and uh, easy. So we find about 20 to 30%, even as children found that difficult. But of course, everybody, when you knock off the brain with starvation, can't do social things, can't pick up the nuances and all these micro signals that we have to process. And so it does get worse. And I've talked about some of these reactions we as normal people have to seeing somebody looking so poorly and and not doing what's obvious. So, you know, so it, it's a sort of perfect storm for horrible relationships to be set up. And yet you know we're such social beings and and having a social group is so important to our health um so that that is the tragedy that this illness destroys them so yes it, it, online is is a is very useful because uh it does provide a way but of course it's got the opposite hasn't it the the pro-anorexic sides that can suck people the other way absolutely was <laughs> just yeah not a good influence you really have to choose your influence um it's it's interesting you say about the social part because um i was actually diagnosed high functioning autistic in recovery i didn't go to i didn't go to anywhere near a shrink when i was sick but i, I in recovery i was diagnosed as that and i i was at that time probably agree and would see why I would be diagnosed as that, but I absolutely am certainly not. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I would not have that diagnosis now, um, sort of you know, 10 years later. <laughs> yeah. Yes, well, I think there's a mixture. I think there's, there's a subgroup, about 6% in adolescence probably do fulfil that criteria. Uh, some have few traits that are, are, are there, but as I say, only up to 20 to 25%. But definitely you know pseudo uh when your brain's knocked off because they all what we know there's all sorts of autism aspergers you know many different syndromes produce that sort of physical so it's having some of the connections in the brain not working as well and if your brain's starved it won't work as well so i think that's very understandable to have this sort of pseudo but it is so important because it does interfere with this healing from social support. Oh yeah, I mean, I couldn't really talk to anybody. It was, um, <laughs> quite... And that's why though, we end up in situations as adults where we have nobody because the, the illness makes us push people away. And, and then, so I do think it, it's quite common that there'll be an adult who might have had an eating disorder, had a few um, IP admissions sort of 10 years into it and then look around and when I say, well, who can help you? Who's going to help you in the home? They're just like, I don't even have any close friends, let alone anybody that would help me with this, which um, it, it's it's a real problem, um, I think, for more adults that, that come up in maybe data or statistics because they're not the people that come forward and ask for help either. Yeah, yes. No, that's right. No, it's a tragedy, isn't it? And, uh, and yet that is sort of how to get social groups um, is so important. But it's a, it's a big problem for our society. We, we aren't as we do tend to be isolated quite a lot and loneliness is a problem for a lot of people. Uh -huh. um, but it is hard when, you know, young people have got all your life ahead of you to have this as a problem. Yes, um, I did a I did a podcast for Eating Disorders Awareness Week on loneliness, where people actually wrote in, and I read out what adults with eating disorders wrote in, and I read out what they said, and it was it was heartbreaking. But it also got a lot of people emailing me and reaching out and talking, um, which which is fantastic. But I think the loneliness part is is huge for those of us that are sick for for long enough that we've pushed everybody away. Put it that way. Yeah. And of course, this critical time period when you're starting to make friendships and connections. So it's really, you know, such a critical time. Yes, and actually, this this sort of happiness, this happiness, and, and talking about people um, parts leads me on to. I, I think that you've done some work on oxytocin and um, anorexia. Could you tell me a little bit about that? 
Yeah, we've only done um, some simple work where we've just done a one-off, one dose, and comparing being on oxytocin or being on placebo and double-blind so that the the therapist and the patient doesn't know what they're getting. Uh, And we were intrigued because there is evidence from animal studies and sort of human studies that it has effects on social behaviour, but it also does have effects on feeding behaviour. So we looked at both of those. The main things we found, and this was just a one-off, so it it, uh, was that we found that the stress level during uh, the cortisol secretion reduced quite a lot with the oxytocin. Uh, And this was, and they were having to have some smoothie, you know, a drink and do these tests. So uh, it was impressive that it allowed that to be better. But in terms of, it also modified some of the attentional bias. I talked about how there's an attention to threat and it reduced that a little bit. But, mm, But some of the social things we were... Uh, we were a bit disappointed about because we didn't see uh, any changes in helping with the, some of the emotion, the emotional tasks. And one thing we were particularly interested in is a lack of facial expression of emotion. And we need this reciprocity to keep conversations going. Uh, and it didn't affect that at all. Uh, we did the reading in mind of the eyes task, which is, and um, it didn't didn't have any effect on that either. So, so yes, it was doing. I mean, it is. I always find it quite amazing that it does. Think, you know, you sniff it up and you think, how does it get into the brain and all of that? Uh, so it does do things, but it didn't do all of these social things. So we think that that might be a different mechanism. That's interesting. Um, I'm I'm a big I'm a big pusher of um, yoga because yoga was so it was a game changer for me in recovery it it really was Um, I had to get up to I probably had to get up to around that almost okay weight before it was but you know my brain was still very much not okay when you know say if I was BMI 1920 when I started doing yoga so I was at a weight where I, I I was getting better but I was nowhere near recovered but the yoga helped the brain bit phenomenally um, it helped me to, the, the feelings that I had towards my body changed radically um, after I started doing yoga, mostly because I start for some reason it helped me see my body as a living organism separate from me that I actually had to look after. So it was just this, this different respect for my body. But um, it's also the being in a room full of people, synchronized breath, as corny as it sounds, it does something, releases I know there's, there's quite a lot of studies with yoga and oxytocin release um, and the community aspect of it. It's, it's this weird thing. It's a bit like actually, say, if you go to a, a music, a concert or something and everybody's there and they're all dancing to the same music and you get that same sort of feeling. Apart from you're not, you're, you're doing yoga in a, in a classroom, but it's, it's that community part. That's very interesting, isn't it? Yes, I mean, those group things like choirs and everything, there, there is, you know, we, as I say... And it probably is. I mean, I, I don't know that uh, work on yoga releasing oxytocin, but it it, it would be a good example mm-hmm. of the, how that happens and what what why we appreciate those things. Going to football, I mean, people do it all the time, don't they? Football matches mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. We do have that uh, liking to be all together and see things together. Yeah, it was it was very helpful for me because I still wasn't particularly at a stage where I could just go up and hug people and be, but it was easier for me to go to a class and be on my yoga mat and not be touching anybody and not be particularly close to anybody, but still be with people. It was yeah. like a good, it was a good stepping stone for me. Um, with, really you good know. way of putting it. Cause if you are a bit, so when you've been very social, you need to do it little by little, as you say, before you're ready to do the hugging and flower power or whatever. <laughs> Yes, and I don't think I ever got to that level, but um, it's, yeah, I think the stepping stones are important because, uh, so I, you know, say if I had uh, 10 years of not being particularly social, I had to relearn a lot of just um, how to interact with people, which which was uh, more difficult than one would think it should be. Um, It felt very awkward all the time when I started being more social and didn't really 
quite know what to say and have a slightly awkward sense of humor anyway, which probably doesn't help. <laughs> um, but the, the, so those things definitely it helped. And I, I, I'm quite interested in oxytocin for, for those reasons. Oh, that's a really interesting point. And I, I, yeah, I don't know if you, if you can point me to any references, but I guess I could look it up as well. But I'm sure that that could easily be it, isn't it? I mean, we know all about the dog's releasing it as when they're with their owners and that sort of thing yeah um, but i wonder if it increases appetite though when it comes down to will it help somebody eat more yeah well the oxytocin is funny i mean it does depend on the context with the appetite so a lot of work shows that it reduces appetite um but uh so you know people have done it sort of stopping people having junk food so uh, but we, we we really don't. We didn't find any effect on how much smoothie people drank. So, mm. uh, but it was this getting the attend the threat attention to food was changed a little bit. Um. So, Janet, what do you you've had a you've had a very long career in in eating disorders? What if you could pick one highlight? What what do you think it would be? Well, I. I don't think I always hate these where you have to do your top 10 or whatever. Because <laughs> I, I, I hate that. Uh, I, I think that one thing that I found wonderful is working with patients and carers. So that has been a highlight of my career that we've been able to work iteratively to develop new things. As I said, developing these metaphors and then we make the intervention better, then we work with patients to do similarly. So I think that iterative process, and we are very much in the UK asked uh, when we're getting uh, NHS funding to have patients and carers involved. And there's no doubt that that is phenomenal and it makes a big deal of difference. Do you think there's much resistance to it? Because it's not the traditional way of, of looking at treating eating disorders. Well, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I, th I think in other countries, they perhaps haven't got that as much as we have. As I say, it, it's very much uh, endorsed now for all treatment, you know, for everything in Britain. Uh, Sally Davis, our head of NHS funding, sort of has sort of implemented that. And so I do think that's one we are ahead of the game and, and it is very helpful. Uh, and it's part of the NHS ethos, of course, because we're all in it together and sharing rather than wanting to keep the power in doctors or, you know, whatever. Yeah, there's a, there's, I mean, there's a sizable... Um... Um, family-based treatment um, over here and but it, it, it still feels that it's a bit more sort of the um, other method right and and psychotherapy and talk therapy it may still be the first port of call for a lot of people and then they usually they usually tend to go that route first because it's easier and or it seems easier and then go towards um, family-based treatment when that hasn't worked sadly which is a couple of years down the line yes it's interesting so i think yeah uh, uh, as i say i think there's more suspicions of this sharing information and skills in america and self-help you know some people have said you can't do self-help for anorexia well we've got a, a self-help trial that we're just start, finished all the data got about 180 patients and we're just starting to analyze and you know people join in and they work in a I mean, it's a guided self-help, so we, we do um, online coaching, um, but it's possible to do. Oh, I, 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 um, I recovered without professional intervention of any kind. I found, Feast I found the Feast website and read all the resources on there and started implementing it for myself. I'm just going to butt in here and explain that Feast, for those of you that haven't listened to many of my podcasts, because I do probably mention Feast, in every other podcast that I do. Feast is uh, the online website that helped me recover and it's a website that's actually geared at parents of children who have eating disorders and it's an online forum where parents can help one another um, help their child overcome an eating disorder and it's that forum that I refer to when I say that I read the Feast forum and then started using the tools that the parents were giving one another and applied them to my own self. And additionally, very importantly, I'd like to add that while, as I said, I did recover without professional help, 
I don't advocate for that. I think it's possible, but I think that for most people, um, especially if you're at a critically low body weight, you gotta get professional help, especially in the refeeding stage. Anybody that's at a critically low body weight should be going into inpatient treatment because that is the fastest way to get the weight back on you. But however, there are some of us that don't respond well to that and therefore other means of treatment must be sought, something that does work for us. And I think as individuals, it's finding that what works for the individual, which is absolutely key. But the hard part of it is that when we're actually sick, we aren't the best judges of what is right for us. And so when I was really sick, I wasn't going to let somebody tell me that I needed to go into inpatient treatment and I probably should have done. I think that what Dr. Treasure is referring to when she talks about self-help is for people who have weight restored and have probably come out of treatment and who are continuing their own recovery. And that's also what I absolutely agree with, that if you've got yourself weight restored, you're on the way there, because weight restoration is only part of the way, that that's where you can actually be the right person to decide what you need in order to keep yourself in recovery and keep your head above water. And not just that, but to keep you going really strongly. Okay, back to the conversation. Where were we? Ah, yes, I was telling Dr. Janet Treasure about how I used the information on family-based treatment that I found on the FEAST website to FBT myself as an adult. Um, so that's actually why I'm so passionate about, especially for adults, because I do think you have, I, I, I had to make myself do it at my own kitchen table. And as difficult as that was, um, it meant that I was, I was making myself do it and therefore I had the skills to make myself eat wherever I was. And I, I talk about it, it's easy. It wasn't. I mean, the first time, the first meal that I sat there at a plate of food and I told myself, you're not leaving the table until you've eaten it. And it took something like five hours and a lot of tears. <laughs> In, but, you know, it got quicker and it got easier. And so I, I do know that you can do it. Um, so you've got your own care inside of you then? Got- I did. So what I did is I read the Feast Forum and I was able to read all the things the parents were saying to their children. And I still, I just, I kept playing that food is medicine in your head. You, um, you know, life stops until you eat. You're not leaving the table until you eat. I read all the things that they were telling the parents to say and replayed in my own head. And which was very difficult because my eating disorder brain was very strong as well. But I was at the point where I thought, well, I'm either going to die or die trying. So, uh, you know, it was, um, I had to reach a point where I was frustrated enough with the illness that I, I really wanted to recover. But um, so I, I actually think though that my, one of the reasons that my recovery feels so robust is because I did do it myself. And I did it in my home, and I know exactly how to make myself eat when I don't want to. Oh, very <laughs> interesting. It is. It's this breaking that automated, you know, stimulus response. It's just wired in, and so it's you know you just have to work hard to interrupt it. Yeah, yeah. And so um, that, I'm really interested that you're you're doing that work. I think that's that's fascinating. I actually think it's much more effective for adults as well. You know, they we're talking about, I'm talking about those ones that have been in and out of IP five times already, and it's not obviously not working for them. Um, and but I do think that treatment in the home can do and um, well, self help. So, that what you're saying is what we agree sharing the resources, you know, sharing what we say, do this, and, and so that the, you can pick it up and do it. And, and you, you, you say you sort of kind of fell into treating eating disorders there must have been something about it that fascinated you or kept you in it or you know kept yeah well I guess I'd I'd come to it I'd done my secondary training as a physician so I'd got a high level of you know being a general doctor skill so that sort of is nice if you're going to deal with something where there are medical problems you feel sort of you you know you feel that that's useful and you're not too frightened by it all so I guess that, um, and, you know, obviously I was very lucky working with Gerald Russell and, uh, and a big team who were very creative and inventive. So that, that was very inspiring, I think. 
Um, but yeah, so no, it, it does look funny because it does look as though I followed a course because I'd done a PhD as a medical student in the hypothalamus and pituitary adrenal. So it all looks as though it was aiming for where I am, but it was really, and we live a few streets away from the Maudsley. I was in America and I was writing to uh, start my psychiatric training. And so that's where I decided to go. <laughs> Very lucky, lucky Maudsley. Um, what you're still, you're still, you told me that you're doing the um, self care trial. Anything else exciting on the horizon? No, well, we, well, we've been doing, we've been doing the self help for outpatients. We're now doing this transition care for inpatients, working with both patients and carers. We've been doing some work with bulimia nervosa binge eating disorder to train because what we think is there's so much that goes on as autopilot uh, and these habits that are autopilot so using new techniques training techniques to stop to add to inhibition of food for binge eating so training people to inhibit to highly palatable binge foods so that's showing some signals that it looks as though it would be interesting so that's something we're trying Similarly, uh, trying to uh, stop some of this this bias, as I've said, to assume that any ambiguous scenario, people are against you and interpret it that way. So training people not to have that bias so that they're more uh, open and expecting nice things to happen so that then maybe they can get more social things. So those are uh, uh, the things we're doing. Hmm. Yeah, um, the the technology piece that it's the, I'm I'm super excited about the the self help bit and um, the transition as well. I um, just set up a a service that's um, sort of like online meal support, but we've also got an online. It's just a text support, um, and it's peer support. It's not it's not professional support, but text peer support. It's so it's it's fascinating to me seeing how technology as for mental health. I think we, I mean we're talking about eating disorders, but I think mental health in general, technology will be able to bridge that transition gap between the um, professional treatment that a person's getting, peer support, and and in home support. Yeah, well that's exactly what we because our we have an on a live online chat support. Uh, and we had about half were people who've recovered were doing the the uh, peer support. The rest were psychologists. The only thing I have a slight worry about that is that you don't want people then move on and need to move on to do different things in your career. So you don't want people all the time sort of, though people are so altruistic and generous and creative. So um, so that's why we've made lots of little tips, little podcasts of, you know, what you wanted to know when you were suffering and that sort of thing. So that we've got, because we know that what patients say is they much prefer to hear other patients. It's, you know, we make fancy CBT things uh, and they're not as interested in that as just hearing from the authentic voice. So that's so important. But I think we have to have something that's sustainable so that, you know, people don't get stuck into just doing that and are able to grow into other areas as well. I mean, I think, I mean, as I say, I've met such wonderful people who've recovered and one sort of introduced me this idea of post-traumatic growth. And and I, and I think that that does happen with a lot of people with eating disorders. They, they really flourish once they're fully recovered and contribute so much in so many different ways. The last question that I asked uh, Professor Janet Treasure was where people can find out more about her. Oh, well, I suppose they go to that Maudsley thing. I don't know. <laughs> I'll put it, I'll put it <laughs> in the show notes. <laughs> Listen, I, I've, got, I've written, a, you see, because that's one of the things I have been doing is writing all these self-help books because I'm a big believer in those. So they, they could look at those. Um, and as I say, they've all been written with people who've recovered or carers as well. So... Um, huge thank you to professor janet treasure for taking the time to talk to me today i will link to in the show notes maudsley that maudsley thing 
which is the warmth new website that she was talking about and i'll also link to the um, books that she mentioned those self um, help books for people who are adults in recovery from eating disorders Thank you for listening today. As always, if you have any topics that you would like covered or any people that you would like me to ask to come and talk to me on this podcast, please reach out to me. You can get me on Twitter. My handle is at love underscore fat underscore or you can email me and the email address is info at tabithafarrar.com. I'd love to have your suggestions on topics that you'd like to be spoken about on this podcast. And also, I really enjoy your questions and um, your questions also for people that have been on the podcast. And I can often send those along as well. As one of the things that we actually spoke about in this podcast was community support, not just for people or individuals who are in recovery themselves, but also community support for the people who are in the lives of those individuals in recovery. And you might be parents, most commonly thought of, I think we think of parents, but let's not forget the spouses and the partners and the just very good friends and family members of individuals with eating disorders that are often going through a lot as well. Eating disorders certainly affect more than just the individual involved to a point and as an adult who had an eating disorder for a very long time I also know that it is to a point because we do tend to push people out of our lives and then sort of maybe 5, 10, 20 years into the illness look around and realize that everybody's gone and it can feel incredibly lonely but that's not to say that there's not support there for you and there's not a community of people who really care and who really want to help you get better and recover. And so um, online communities, all you have to do is reach out for me. I have an online community for adults over 25 in eating disorder recovery and also one for spouses, partners and parents of adults over 25 in eating disorder recovery. And online support might not be the same as in-person support, but sometimes actually it can almost be better to talk to somebody without any strings attached, just purely getting some help, getting some information from maybe somebody else that's been there, been through it, and is just there because they want to help someone like you who is going through what they've been through before. It's really worth looking into. Thank you for listening. Cheers. And until next time, cheerio.